This is Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories here. They run the gamut, from a few minutes to an hour, from music to sports to history. But what they all have in common is that they're stories that interest you. A big topic we've been digging into is health care, and a series we call What Happens When. Here's our chief health editor, Jim Glassman, with our latest piece, all about a disease that should especially interest baby boomers. You're listening to the theme music of the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, a spaghetti western about finding a gold fortune. But the title could just as easily have been describing health care in the 21st century. The good, patients are living longer and better than ever before. The bad, the system is so complicated that we don't have a clue how even basic things work or cost. The ugly, well... We'll save that for later. But I promise, this story has a happy ending. This What Happens When episode is what happens when you learn that you have hepatitis C. And it comes from our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. Take it away, Alex. On what you thought was a relatively normal day... Deborah Clark Duchesne learned that she had hepatitis C. She bravely shared her story at statnews.com and graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. It's easy to find fault with ads for prescription drugs. Few people get to hear about the good that can come from these ads. For some people, including me, they provide the information and motivation to take life-saving actions. In 2008, I was living a wonderful life, not the movie, after having retired from a long career working as an elementary school teacher, principal, and consultant. I was playing golf, reading, rescuing dogs, building miniature dollhouses, and volunteering at a hospital near my hometown of Temperance, Michigan. Yes, I live in Temperance, Michigan. In preparation for minor foot surgery, I had some blood tests. They revealed that I had chronic hepatitis C. As I soon learned from the doctor, who was really more upset than I was, chronic hepatitis C is a leading cause of advanced liver disease, liver cancer, and liver failure, and is responsible for more deaths each year in the United States than HIV. I can't say for sure how I was infected with the hepatitis C virus. It most likely happened in 1978 when I got a blood transfusion during surgery for cancer of all things. I became extremely sick following the transfusion. Tests showed that I had non-A, non-B hepatitis, now known as hepatitis C. The infectious disease doctor visiting should have been a clue too. Once I recovered, I had no other symptoms 
and didn't think about the issue again for almost 30 years. When I was diagnosed with chronic hepatitis C in 2008, many people had never heard of it. Many still haven't. There was a culture of secrecy about it, just like there was with cancer and like there is now with HIV and AIDS. That secrecy fosters shame and misunderstanding. Both contributed to my long-term boyfriend's decision to abruptly end our relationship after learning of my diagnosis through email. I hope you're listening. Yes, it's you. Determined to defeat hepatitis C, I started a year-long course of treatment with a drug called interferon. It caused awful side effects, thinning hair, severe weight loss, well, the weight loss wasn't so bad, nausea, vomiting, eczema, and breathing problems. Even worse, it didn't work. My doctor recommended that I stop the treatment and hope for a new drug to be developed. Uh Uh-huh, like I was going to go through that again. They eventually came along. But I didn't know about them until I saw a TV commercial last year talking about hepatitis C. In fact, I saw these commercials many times. At first, I changed the channel when they came on. Then I walked out of the room. Other times, I would talk back to the TV, which is kind of embarrassing. They reminded me of my experience with interferon, and I vowed I would never again accept such terrible side effects for the possibility of a cure. Eventually, though, the commercials nudged me to do something. I went back to my doctor and learned that new medicines with much higher cure rates and far fewer side effects had become available. But I had to make sure there was no interferon. One month after starting to take one of these new drugs, the amount of hepatitis virus in my blood had dropped significantly. I was experiencing nowhere near the side effects of interferon. Well, I did need to take a short nap every day, but that might be because of my age, and experience some diarrhea, but was able to live a normal life. Two months later, the hepatitis C virus couldn't be detected in my blood, and my doctor told me I should consider myself cured. I still take naps every day, though. I strongly believe that if I hadn't seen TV ads about chronic hepatitis C, and new drugs to treat it, I wouldn't have done anything to protect myself against it. Matter of fact, there are new commercials out now that are even better. Nobody to talk back to in the commercial. Those commercials, though, raised my awareness of the disease and gave me the courage to try again to beat it. I'm sure I'm not the only person they've helped. Deborah sure isn't. And when we come back, more with our What Happens When series, more with Alex, and more on this great, great story.
Welcome back to our healthcare storytelling series where we talk to everyday Americans and leading medical professionals to answer questions like, what really happens when you learn you have hepatitis C? We just heard from a longtime elementary school teacher and principal about how hepatitis C nearly ruined her life and how a drug commercial, of all things, helped her to find a cure. Here's our own Alex Cortez picking up the story from there. Hepatitis C is a disease that we often don't hear about because there's some stigma attached to it. Stigma from the fact that many folks were infected by sharing needles while using illicit drugs. But there are also plenty of folks like Deborah who were infected after they received blood transfusions during surgery. Before tests were developed for the hepatitis C virus, we simply did not know if donated blood carried the virus. And once the hepatitis C virus enters a body, it often lurks silently, not causing obvious symptoms for years or even decades. There are the made-for-horror movie diseases that spend days or weeks looping on cable news, terrifying the public, and then there are the other much more common diseases that we almost never hear about. And those may well be the more dangerous ones. Deborah piqued our curiosity about this quiet threat, hepatitis C, and also a new generation of drugs, starting with Solvaldi and Harvoni, that can actually cure the disease. And so to learn more, we called the specialist. My name is Dr. Stuart Gordon. I'm director of the Division of Hepatology at the Henry Ford Health Center in Detroit, Michigan. Hepatology, that's a fancy word that really means that Dr. Gordon spends an awful lot of time helping folks with liver conditions, like inflammation of the liver called hepatitis. And there are many types of hepatitis viruses that have different letter names like A, B, and C, and they're spread in different ways. But the one thing they all have in common is that left untreated, it can lead to liver scarring, failure, or cancer, none of which is very good. And you know, we usually don't think about our livers at all because they're working well. But any of these liver problems that arise can become severe life problems. This underrated vital organ filters our blood to break down harmful substances, helps to digest our food, and assembles proteins that we couldn't live without. Like one that forms blood clots so that we don't die from paper cuts, which is just remarkable but it becomes less remarkable when that liver becomes infected. Of the various liver diseases, hepatitis C in particular affects many more people than we might think or might be aware. The estimates are that anywhere from about 2.5 million to 4.5 million, generally about 4 to 5 million has been suggested individuals in the United States are living with hepatitis C. So the overall prevalence is about 1.5% in the United States. Um, But if you look at those individuals born between 1945 and 1965, that prevalence goes up to about 3, 3.5%. So clearly the overall prevalence is not the same as the prevalence in the baby boomer population. Yikes! Some 4 to 5 million Americans with hepatitis C and up to 3.5% of baby boomers? 
That's an awful lot of folks at risk for liver damage and cancer. But how did hepatitis C get identified in the first place? It was recognized back in the 1970s after the discovery of hepatitis B that a lot of the uh, hepatitis that was being transmitted through blood transfusion was not type B. We thought B was serum hepatitis or blood, and it was not B. And then they coined the term non-A, non-B. So that was what we called it for a long time, and that was the uh, form of, of hepatitis that was largely being transmitted through Uh, the blood supply, tainted blood. People were donating and didn't realize that they were infected. Happily, since the 1990s, new tests have largely eliminated hepatitis C from our blood supply. And today, there's almost no risk of getting the disease from a transfusion. But that still leaves us with a lot of infected folks from before researchers found ways to protect that blood supply. Deborah Clark Duchesne, who we heard from earlier, was likely infected after receiving blood during a surgery many years ago, but she didn't know. Dr. Gordon tells us more about hepatitis C patients who have no idea that they're sick. Unfortunately, most patients with liver disease, regardless of the cause, don't have symptoms, and that can be good and it can be bad. People can live their lives not know, though, that they have a liver disease. So that can occur for any form of liver disease. Most patients with hepatitis C are often asymptomatic until more advanced uh, liver disease evolves. Fatigue is probably the major symptom that most people may have. And most of the patients didn't have an acute episode. In other words, they didn't get jaundiced at any time. So they were really unaware that they may have been infected. So the general recommendation has been that since this birth cohort, as they call it, individuals born between 1945 and 1965, has such a high risk that, that all of them get tested. Uh, there's been some suggestion of just risk-based, but a lot of people may not realize that they are at risk. So the, the current recommendations from the U.S. task force is that any individual born in that age group uh, should be tested at least once for the hepatitis C virus. Why is that testing so important? And what happens to hepatitis C patients left untreated? A lot of patients who had hepatitis C got it back in the 60s and 70s and didn't know that they've had it, and many have been infected now for decades. So the next stage is to find out, all right, virus is there, what, what is the damage that has been done, if any? If it's been present for many, many years, there's a chance that it may have progressed, and the, the, the scary estimates are that about 25-30% at least of the U.S. population who has hepatitis C has already progressed to cirrhosis, and these are quite surprising statistics because many of these patients are totally asymptomatic. Cirrhosis is, of course, the scarring of the liver. So the next check if the individual is infected is to find out what type, what strain, how much, and in particular, how much liver damage is there. And that's, there's some fairly simple, reliable tests that can be done to help assess you know, the amount of scarring in the liver, where people stand. This liver scarring called cirrhosis that Dr. Gordon is talking about is particularly important because when left undiagnosed and untreated, cirrhosis can lead to complications like liver failure and liver cancer. And that may require a liver transplant. And as you might imagine, putting someone else's liver into your own body, that's a major procedure. 
and it has major costs. More than half a million dollars for the transplant process. And since our bodies will attack almost anything they don't recognize, like a donated organ, transplant patients will need to take drugs for the rest of their lives to keep their own immune systems from targeting the new livers. And those drugs cost more than $10,000 a year. But hepatitis C doesn't stop at the liver. And it's, it's also important to emphasize that it's not always just the liver that can be infected, or, or affected, I should say. We're recognizing more and more that this is not just a liver disease and really probably shouldn't be thought of as just a liver disease. For many, it's simply a quality of life issue. It affects the uh, energy level. There's depression associated with it. There can be other aches and pains, skin manifestations, kidney, etc. So the list goes on and on of the mischief that this virus can cause outside of the liver. So it's important to emphasize that, yes, we are talking about hepatitis and we're talking about amount of liver disease, but for some people they may be asymptomatic, for some people they just may have unexplained chronic fatigue, and for other people they may have, uh, you know, say, skin or kidney problems and not even know that they have a liver problem called hepatitis C. Ugh, that all sounds unpleasant. But the good news is that testing for hepatitis C is extremely simple and affordable. It's usually just a blood draw. But what happens if that test comes back positive? And when we come back, more in our What Happens When series. And my goodness, I read up on these things. This is stunning and startling. And my goodness, the miracles of modern medicine that have put an end to this. The blood supply, thank goodness. I mean, who would have known? Who would have thought? Life-saving treatment blood can kill you. Crazy. And that this woman actually was infected trying to treat her own cancer. She got something that was perhaps just as bad, or almost as bad. When we come back, more with Alex, and then we'll close out the hour, as always, with our chief health editor, Jim Glassman. What happens when you get hepatitis C? More after these messages. back with more of our healthcare series what happens when this time it's all about a disease that silently endangers millions of americans but especially baby boomers here again is alex cortez on what happens after someone is diagnosed with hepatitis c a virus that can wreak havoc on your liver your body and your life it used to be that the treatment was very long and rather unpleasant too as deborah told us but that's all changing. Here again is Dr. Stuart Gordon, the director of the Division of Hepatology at the Henry Ford Health Center in Detroit. For many years, we've been dealing with toxic therapies uh, that have been injectable, that have 
been unsuccessful in many people uh, and have caused more problems than good, unfortunately, for a lot of people. We did cure a lot of people over the years, but it was the, at the cost of toxicity um, and reluctance on the part of both physicians and patients to undergo this toxicity, often for upwards of a year, uh, only to find out that it didn't work. So the treatment has been difficult, um, time-consuming, and often unsuccessful for a long, long time. This old interferon therapy required weekly shots, and for up to 48 weeks, and it only worked for half the patients. For the other half, like Deborah, the old treatment still cost some $40,000, tormented them with aches, nausea, fatigue, and worse, and at the end of the year, there was no payoff. They were still left with hepatitis C. All of that has changed in the last year or two. We've really witnessed a uh, revolution that's uh, sort of unparalleled in medicine because we've transitioned from toxic, ineffective therapy to very non-toxic, very effective therapy just within the last year. It's been really breathtaking to see and to witness the changes in this field. We give people a -a once-a-day pill now, and it's effective in almost everybody if we can catch the disease early enough. Wow, that is amazing. We used to subject hepatitis C patients to a year-long ordeal like Deborah's, and now thanks to the discovery of drugs like Gilead Stovaldi and Harvoni, we can offer them once-a-day pills that will cure nearly everybody in 12 weeks. But these modern-day drugs were also subject of a media controversy. It was hepatitis C grabbing the headlines today, not just for Merck, but across the drug industry. A growing war over the cost of medicine sent drug maker stocks plunging. A new drug is curing hepatitis in just weeks. The catch? It's pricey. Riding the Dow down today also was Merck. Shares of the drug maker fell more than 3%, making it the worst performer in that index after it released... A new Disney. miracle drug is available, but it's cost about $1,000 a pill. Year after year, pills cost penny green Of course, there's a perfectly understandable reason for some controversy. These great drugs that can cure hepatitis C? Well, they came out with list prices of eighty to ninety-five thousand dollars for a course of treatment. And even though there are discounts in insurance or Medicare, Medicaid covers most of the costs for nearly everyone, we're still talking about a lot of money. But ask yourself this, what does the patient get in return? And what does Dr. Gordon know that many news headline writers simply glossed over? Looking at the data, costs appear to be effective. In other words, the costs are finite. When we look at some other diseases such as uh, HIV, for example, hepatitis B, or even things like diabetes, um, hypertension, their long-term management. In the case of hepatitis C, we're really talking about a finite course of therapy so that that the treatment is curative, not suppressive. So patients take a course of therapy, generally just one course of therapy, Uh, And that's it. They never have to get treatment again for the rest of their lives. So when you're looking at costs, it's it's more upfront type costs to achieve a cure. 
If you look at the cost of our old interferon-based therapy, it was stretched out over the course of a year and was uh, largely ineffective, uh, or, or often ineffective, in which case the, the cost uh, went down the, the drain, so to speak. So right now we're dealing with highly effective therapy that may be costly at the outset, but it's a one-time cost of therapy. And the other is that it improves uh, the all-cause mortality. And so what the data has shown is that achieving a cure improves uh, not only getting rid of the virus, but actually uh, achieves what's called all-cause mortality improvement. So the risk of dying not just from liver disease and cirrhosis, but really all causes of death is reduced. So the costs need to be looked at in its entirety because it may not be uh, immediately recognized that individuals who are rid of the hepatitis C virus have a, a, a chance of living longer and a better quality of life than individuals who are infected. So it's a complex issue that can't just be answered quickly, but there is cost-benefit in achieving a viral cure. One way to look at it is that the new drugs initially cost about twice as much, but they work twice as well. But even that's really missing Dr. Gordon's main point about curing hepatitis C. These new drugs actually rid the body of the virus. Other treatments only deal with the effects of hepatitis, including something as drastic as a full liver transplant. It doesn't purge the virus from patients' bodies. So in 80 to 90% of cases... Hepatitis came right back to attack the new liver. It hasn't been long since these new drugs that can cure hepatitis C have hit the market. And already, we're seeing increased competition. There are more drugs becoming available, and they treat different strains of hepatitis C. And because of this competition, costs are dropping. But of course, Dr. Gordon's primary concern is the well-being of his patients. And what does he make of all these advancements? What we've witnessed is nothing short of miraculous. And when I see this incredible ability now to cure people with a once-a-day pill, and now we have such therapy out there, and we're hearing this firestorm about the cost rather than uh, excitement and um, uh, celebration uh, of what medicine and the pharmaceutical industry has brought for us. We've really improved quality of lives. All you have to do is see individuals who say, Doctor, I've never felt this good in my life. My energy level is back again. I'm able to shoot hoops. I'm able to do stuff that I never could do before. And you see people who are just so excited about their improved quality of life. We know that they've reduced their chance of cancer. We know that they've eliminated the stigma of having hepatitis C. We have never had any sort of chronic viral infection in history that you can eradicate. So these are individuals who are getting cured. It's unfortunate. Uh, it is coming at some upfront cost, but what we're literally looking at is major downstream benefits, improved quality of lives. And when you see the happiness in the patients uh, who have been cured of a chronic viral infection, this is really a very exciting time for society, for medicine, and for our citizens. And so I would rather see um, uh, celebration <laughs> than um, than us pointing the fingers. Here, here, reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez.
And great job as always, Alex. What a story. And there was a story inside a story inside a story, actually. There was the story of the disease. There was the story of Deborah Clark Duchesne. And of course, Dr. Stuart Gordon. And always in the end, trying to bring health care back to that doctor patient nexus where the rubber hits the road. And so many of us feel like that cord has been severed. We feel it. We feel it like nothing else. When we come back, the story behind the story with uh, Chief Health Editor here at Our American Stories, Jim Glassman. And again, what happens when is a regular series here on Our American Stories. Go to our website. We're going to start to post them there. And that's at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. is our american stories and we return with our chief health editor jim glassman and we've just listened jim to one heck of a story but i want to pick up where i just left off because so often in these conversations about health care jim we forget one simple thing we forget the patient and the doctor and my goodness what cause for celebration here don't you think absolutely i mean you could you could hear it in dr gordon's voice i mean he's been treating people with hepatitis c for a long time now there's an actual cure. We don't have cures for much of anything. And this is probably going to be the beginning of a long series of cures. Some of them will be expensive, but the price of not being cured is a whole lot higher, both in the human cost and the, and the money cost. And doctors know that. Doctors are, doctors are the key. The doctor-patient relationship is the key. It's so true. And, you know, the other thing that was interesting is we now know how to diagnose this problem. We also have cured the bloodstream of this problem over the last 30 years. Jim, it's just a remarkable story all the way around. Yeah, it really is. And unfortunately, it got off on the wrong foot a few years ago. And I remember sitting in in my car listening to uh, NPR. You ever heard of that? Yeah. And talking about, you know, they were doing it sincere job. They were trying to get the story right. But the story that they emphasized was the money part of the story. And look, you know, that's, that is part of it. But that's not the main thing. This is a, a revolution that's going on right now in medicine. And an actual cure to hepatitis C, which is a, a disease that leads to either death or a lot of suffering or a $500,000 liver transplant, this is an amazing thing. And, uh, you know, one of the other things I would say is that there's a lot of publicity about how this drug costs $100,000. Actually, that's not right. Um, actually, with the discounts, the actual price that the insurance companies and Medicare, Medicaid are paying is was, anyway, in the first year, closer to $50,000. And since then, it has declined through mainly through competition because other drug companies have come up with similar drugs. This is exactly what we want to have happen. And by the way, Jim, let's get real. When we're talking about costs, we have to talk about savings. And the savings here, first of all, it's a saved life. 
It's a saved quality of life. And that's off the books, off the accounting books roll. But then you look at all the other savings. If this drug ravages other parts of her body, she's taking other treatments. And we don't know the untold amount of money that this drug actually might have saved somebody, too. Right. Completely agree. And, you know, one of the things I would also say is that 91% of Americans have either insurance or they're on Medicare, they're on Medicaid, they're on VA. They are not paying that money. They have an insurance policy, and the insurance company, quite properly, because you're paying the premiums or you paid into Medicare, is paying. And that's the insurance company's job. Now, a lot of the complaints about the price of hepatitis C medicines were ginned up by insurance companies who didn't want to pay the price. They have, they now understand, and they have, they have, uh, they are paying the price as they should. Hey, Jim, tell the story because. Uh, your your uh, encounter with hepatitis C was personal. Uh, talk about the story that got us to this story. Yeah, I was. So I'm at my uh, high school reunion, and I I, I see this uh, this woman that I kind of barely recognize because it's been many years. Um, nice, attractive woman that, that I was in a high school play with and and kissed. You know, I got to kiss her. Uh, which was a thrill for me, maybe not for her. Anyway, so she's there. She's there with her, her husband, whom I'd never met. I hadn't seen her in many, many years, and uh, we got to talking about health care. And the husband said, "There's a drug that saved my life, and it is. It's it, it's amazing. I had, and I didn't realize I had it until several years ago. I had hepatitis C, and it was terrible. It was, it was devastating me. I had to get a liver transplant." The liver transplant didn't work. Then my doctor told me there's this new drug that just come on, which at the at the time was called Savaldi. Now there's an advanced drug called Harvoni, and there are many other drugs. But at the time, he started taking uh, Savaldi, and within less than three months, he his body was completely free of the virus. He said, "I never, I haven't felt this good in 30 years." It was an amazing story, and. I, you know, to that point, I never, I really didn't know much about this. And that's a, in the end, Jim, if you have that disease or your family member or friend has that disease, that's what we call in modern life a miracle. Absolutely. And, you know, these, these miracles are happening every day. I think we're really focused on the wrong thing. We talk about, you know, the healthcare system, uh, the reimbursement system, and so forth, and those are important. But what's really important is not health care. It is health. That's what we all want. And we actually have a good system in this country for, for bringing people the kind of health care that, that gives them health. A lot of the health, by the way, that we have or don't have, we are personally responsible for. Yep. So, you know, we, we need to think about what we eat, how much we exercise, and whether we smoke or not. That's, that's the key. And when people talk about how expensive healthcare is in in America, how much we spend. A lot of that is because we are not a particularly healthy country. But uh, maybe we'll get into that later. But the key is health, health, and we're doing a lot through uh, hospitals, through through medicines, to improve the the health of Americans. That's what counts. Let's talk about drug costs for a minute, Jim. How much does it cost to develop a new drug, and what happens to the cost of drugs after they hit the market? and then down the market cycle when they become generic. Talk about that sort of three-stage sequence. Sure. So it it costs a lot of money to develop a drug. Uh, There's a 
famous study that Tufts has done and has updated that shows it actually costs more than $2 billion to develop a drug and get it to the point where it goes on the market. Because, you know, dozens and dozens of, of molecules are tried and fail or fail to get approval. So in a typical year, about 40 to 50 drugs in a really good year, like, uh, like we're now having, good years like we're now having, uh, get approved by the, by the Food and Drug Administration. Those drugs are on patent, and so nobody can copy the drug exactly, or it's a violation. And generally, the patent, the patent law is sort of complicated, but you typically get uh, a, a patent for, you're protected, but typically you're protected by your patent for, let's say, about 10 years. After that time, somebody can copy your drug and put out a generic. Now, roughly 90% of the prescriptions that are filled in the United States are for generic drugs. And the price of these generics, in many cases, are quite low. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're on statin drugs, for example, when they first came out, they're the ones that lower your cholesterol. When they first came out, they were relatively expensive drugs. Now you can get statin drugs, even if you pay for them yourself. Even if you're not insured, you can get them for about $10 a month. And so, so drug prices, uh, generic drug prices, have, have really have dr- driven down the cost of pharmaceuticals. And that doesn't happen in any other sector of healthcare. I mean, you know, as time goes on, uh, doctors charge more as time goes on. A hospital stay, which now averages fifty, I'm sorry, a hospital stay, which averages five thousand dollars a night without doing anything, not a procedure, just staying in the hospital, five thousand dollars a night. That that keeps going up. But yeah, and Jim, that's because the overhead jump. costs go up and the people costs go up with this with this drug. It's intellectual property. It's a sunk cost up front. But it's sort of like a scaled, you know, it's like su- something you can scale on the Internet. That is, once that sunk cost has been paid and the generic comes off, as you pointed out, it's the one part of the healthcare system where the prices actually go dramatically down over time. Absolutely. And I, I don't want to throw too many uh, numbers at the listeners, but uh, Express Scripts, which is uh, called a pharmaceutical benefit manager, so they're the ones that stand between the, in- the insurer and, and you and getting your drugs, uh, they they have uh, about 80 million members. They're, they're gigantic, right? So they do a study every year on prices. And, you know, if you take a look at this study, you'll be amazed. I mean, the fact is traditional drugs, non-specialty drugs, last year the unit costs actually declined. Um, I'm looking at, like, heart disease drugs. Heart disease drugs dropped last year, 11% in price. So when you look at individual drugs, especially the ones we use every day, those prices are going down, as they will with generics and with more competition. And Jim, you know, I was about to interrupt and say, are there any ways drug prices can be brought down? Because I know deep down inside, and we got a minute and change left here, but you're describing that the drug prices are, in some instances, coming down. Yes. For traditional drugs, Drug prices are coming down. Now, utilization, people are using more, which is a good thing. Um, but there is a problem. There is a problem, and it's, it is a, it's a very kind of specialized problem, and that is that certain kinds of generic drugs, in fact, are going up in price. And that's partly because of some regulatory problems at the FDA, which the Food and Drug Administration 
I don't want to get too deeply into that, but let me just say that the, the, the guy who's been nominated to be the new FDA commissioner, uh, Scott Gottlieb, whom I've known for many years, is going to fix that problem. And it really is sort of an administrative problem where it's difficult for generic drugs to get approvals in certain cases. One good example, which got a lot of publicity, is EpiPen. So the reason EpiPen's prices were so high was even though it had come off patent, it didn't have generic competition. It should have, and it will have, I guarantee you, when these problems get fixed. Well, Jim, this is, uh, this is just such great storytelling. And in the end, we always have to connect it back to that doctor and the patient. And, Jim, thanks so much for all you're doing here at Our American Stories, and thanks for the storytelling. Oh, my pleasure. Great story. our American stories and it's time for our on leadership series and today our own Alex Cortez brings us an interview with a fellow Chicagoan Andy McKenna the former chairman of McDonald's for 13 years the owner of Schwartz a leading supply chain management company in the paper industry and Andy is also one of the city's foremost civic leaders let's take a listen to the beginning of their conversation Tell me your first job as a kid. We asked every single guest uh, what it was, uh, what you learned from it. Did it help you get to where you are today? A funny story? Well, uh, uh, so you have a lot of first jobs as kids, depending upon whether you're talking about uh, the part-time job while going through school. Yeah. um, Or... um, Like I was a caddy at a country club. So, yeah, starting in sixth grade. Well, one of my first jobs was working at uh, Jackson Park Golf Course here uh, if you know what Jackson Park is mm-hmm. on the south side, and I was a green cutter. In fact, one of the things I always remember is I, I went there as I went there, and I, I applied for this job, and I got the job to be a green cutter. And I couldn't. Uh, there were two of us cutting greens, and a green cutter started early at six because they need to get through the golf course before the golfers came. So I, I determined that I could cut. I could cut. We each were going to cut nine greens. I could cut nine greens in about three and a half hours. So I went to the boss and I said, "I said his name was Joe Payne. I'll never forget." I said, "Joe, uh, appreciate the job, but I said you don't need both of us. One of us can do something else because I can cut these greens in three and a half hours." He said, "Shh, don't don't even talk." The job was pegged for for, for two people, and it, it, and and it was the park district and the park people. People have their own way of uh, of building an empire, and I said, "Well, what would I do?" He said, "Just go sit on the bench." He said, "Do you like to read me?" I sit in that bench for the other 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 part of the day. So I can't be be, uh, be part of that. That just doesn't that doesn't make doesn't make sense. So I guess w- w- that that was that was one job. But I that had, almost teaches you that incentives matter, right? Yeah, well, it's not their money; it's the taxpayers' money. And yeah, oh yeah. We then talked about Andy's parents and their impact on his life. His mom had her hands full with six young kids, and his dad. He started out his career as a clerk at a coal company and rose all the way, a long way, to become its president. Is there a moment that stands out of, you know, something your mom or your dad told you, either either when you got in trouble or not, or that... Well, uh, it's it's funny when you, you say that, because 
I was, uh, when I finished high school, I was going to school, college. I, I'd be the first in the family to go to college. And the question was, what was I studying? And I, 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 I liked writing a lot. So I thought I would want to want to study journalism in school. I remember my father saying to me, uh, you, got, you want to do, ought to do what you want to do and what you need to do. Uh, but you keep telling and saying that you, you there's a lot of things you want to do. You want to earn money so you can help other people. He said that that may not be come easily through being a journalist. Might maybe more so somewhere in, in business. That, that always stood out in my mind, even though he knew that my I had aspirations to be be in journalism. And determined to financially help others, Andy heeded his father's advice and didn't major in journalism in college. And his education went far beyond the classroom. I went to law school after undergraduate school, and I had my first year in law school. I had four jobs at one time. I I, I taught school. Um, I had a floral delivery route, which I picked them up, flowers them away way home from where I was teaching school, and you just delivered them to hospitals or homes or what have you. I I, uh, I was in a currency exchange helping people uh, with no means fill out tax returns, mm-hmm. and then I, I tutored a Russian uh, engineer in my neighborhood in English grammar at night. That's why I was doing four jobs at one time and going to law school. I decided this is not very smart, so I switched to I switched to uh, I was that was a while. I switched to Paul where I. I could accelerate my law school education and I had one job. So that was probably my first real job was with a, cam- a company that made inexpensive cameras, the United States Camera Corporation, who made cameras for Sears and Wars and all the, yeah. the then big, big, big players. And so how did you get here? So I was with the uh, I was with I was with the, that company and it was a family company. It was nice people, but but I wasn't going to go anywhere because it was. All of his family, and they knew that. So they said to me, "You know, um, you look like a guy who wants to make some make money, and uh, to consider a, a, a company like this." It was a different company at that time, and uh, they had a friend who was the head of sales of the company, and he, they said, "Go with, talk to him." I did like what he said. Uh, had one child, a second on the way. It was the the compensation was decent, and you could make a lot of money if you really worked hard. And I loved that. I loved being paid for performance. So I took that job, and after a year and a half, I came to the founder of the company and I told him I was leaving. And he said, why would you leave the job? You're doing well, you're making a fair amount of money, why would you do this? What are you gonna do? I said, well, I'm gonna start my own business. He said, well, he said, what kind of business? And I said, well, it'll be just like yours. I said, oh, you're gonna compete with me. And I said, he says, who's gonna finance you? And he said, I said, well, I think I've got a financeable deal. I've talked to a couple of banks. He said, I'll finance you. I said, well, why would you finance me when I'm going to compete with you? Because he said, I have confidence in you. He said, look around here. He said, think about what you could do here uh, when I'm funding it. And he said, and he he had a he had a stepson who who was unlikely to ever own the company. So he said, uh, think about it and let's talk about it. So I said, no, let's talk about it now. So we made a deal, uh, which he just it was just a handshake, but someday I'd have an opportunity to buy the business, and I did. That company is Schwartz Supply Source, and Andy McKenna still owns it to this day. And when we come back, more on Andy McKenna's life. This is our On Leadership series. Alex is doing the interviewing. He's doing the work. 
And we love doing these on Leadership Series. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to all that we do. Are these days in histories, too, as well. We have over 200 hours worth of programming there. 200 hours. More after these messages on leadership. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our On Leadership series and Alex's interview with Andy McKenna, the former chairman of McDonald's for 13 years and the owner of Schwartz, a leading supply chain management company in the paper industry. We were just talking about that company right now that he would soon run. And by the way, staked by the guy who he used to work for so that he can compete with him. The two... Alex and McKenna then dove right into the question of leadership. Andy's office at Swartz, where we conducted this interview, is a very Spartan, unglamorous office. And so I just had to ask him about it. Andy, I'm sure you've seen all the flashy offices downtown. Is this intentional, the, the look and feel of this office? Yeah, it is. I mean, I've, I've got an office out in um, Oakbrook at McDonald's, which is, looks entirely different than, yeah. than, 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 than this but this this business is is a um, uh, how, how do I say it? It, it? It's a very basic business, and, and and so we want to be very basic in everything every, everything we do. I have a uh, I don't know really, we're familiar with the company ITW. Mm-hmm. ITW stands for Illinois Toolworks. So they just moved. They just bought one of Kraft's old headquarters in Glenview, and I went over there to have breakfast with uh, Scott Sandy, who's the CEO, and he says, "I want you to notice what we did." He says. We downed everything. He said, we, everything that was look, plusier is gone. It's bare bones. Yeah. Well, not, I say bare bones. It's not, not, it's not so bare bones. It doesn't look, it looks, I'll put it differently, it looks comfortable. So uh, so I, I think that's, that. this is fine. This is yeah. good. It sends a message to your people about oh, what's yeah. important. Or a, or a client comes in and, and, and comes yeah. in. And says, oh. <laughs> You're not spending my money on yeah, this fancy yeah, office. Yeah. Did I did, did I fund the office? <laughs> yeah. How, how did that happen? So no, no. I think uh, Alex, that's it, that's that's all part of the part of the mix. That's the way it is. Andy then shared what he believes is fundamental to all of his business activities and truly every activity in our lives. I have great feelings, Alex, about trust and and what what you can do. More things fail. Because of bad communication and no, uh, no trust. I mean, you think about it, whether it's government, whether it's, I don't care what it is, 
you don't have if you can't communicate your message and you can't deal with people you can trust it it's tough what do you do when the trust is gone either at this company or mcdonald's have you had to get rid of people or yeah. oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah i remember uh, particularly at mcdonald's but even here even here we had a guy who was a great producer but there were some issues that developed trust issues and and and, and it, it wasn't that it wasn't it wasn't corrected by saying oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to do it or i won't do it again because sometimes you you you, you, you have to move on because particularly when, when other people in the organization see that you didn't take take some very deliberate action to 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 deal with the lack of trust or, or to deal with the issue that produced the lack of trust. And Andy, cultivating the right team that's grounded in mutual trust isn't just a concern for the present moment. It's a concern for the future. And especially who's going to lead that team, no matter how large or how small, into the future. Succession is so top of mind for him that every year he dedicated the entirety of one of McDonald's quarterly board meetings to succession planning. And every board meeting, they talked about it without the current CEO being in the room. Here's my conversation with Andy about succession. I've heard you talk about succession at McDonald's, you know, how much you guys focus on it there. Can you kind of walk us through that? And what do you think people can learn from all of your experience there? Well, I think one thing you can learn is always, and particularly in a company of that size, is to always be ready. You know, the succession planning is vital in any organization, and that, that would be true from for-profit organizations and non-profit organizations. So uh, you, you have to know the old s- story, anyone getting hit by a bus, and, 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 and what, do you, what do you do next? So there we, we, we've always focused on having somebody ready somewhere, somehow, within the, organi- in the organization. <clears throat> and I think that's, that's vital in, in, in a lot of things you do in life, you know, and be ready, be, be ready to, for the exceptional. Be ready for the unexpected. Is that why you guys prefer to promote from within so that someone's already ready? That's the easiest way of doing it. And it's not the, not the, it's a preferred way of doing it, but it's not the only way of doing it. I think you've got to be open-minded about that. that, that, that you've got to hope you've got somebody inside the organization you can move up. We've always had the advantage of that. That's always worked. But, you know, some, at some point in time, you have to think about whether, whether, someone, whether there's some skills that you don't have enough of. And you need to go on the outside and bring somebody in. So you, you, you get, I think you have to be open-minded about the fact that we don't have any, uh, uh, you know, we, we don't have all the skills here, or we don't have all the skills that we need. Be ready to have reach out for someone who's uh, who, who may have great greater skills, or maybe. And sometimes a cultural change in an organization is not is not all bad. But on basis, I think succession, pl- good succession planning re- requires that you have somebody on the team or somebody you we can get too quickly. Andy just isn't saying this flippantly or in theory. Getting to someone quickly has been all too real for him. He began the year 2003 not as the chairman of McDonald's, but as a normal board member and the chair of the board's governance committee. That January, they had a new CEO and chairman, Jim Cantalupo, who had been called out of retirement. And only three months later, Andy received a 5 a.m. phone call. Never good. From then-president Charlie Bell, Charlie told him that Jim had passed away at 60 years of age. Andy instantly took charge in this leadership vacuum and later recalled that morning, 
we had three choices. We could have made no decision, which was unacceptable. We could have appointed an interim CEO, which was more unacceptable. Interim CEOs are never the best way. It's like buying something on trial. The third and obvious choice was to promote Bell, who had been Cantalupo's protege and heir apparent. He was supposed to be groomed for a few more years before stepping up. But there was no time for preparation. Andy said, we immediately announced Jim's death, and we were able to elect his successor before the stock market opened. Just remarkable. Andy was then elected the new chairman that same morning, and Charlie Bell, who had started at McDonald's when he was 15 years old and now was only 43, was set to be the CEO for the long haul, was supposed to be. Only three weeks later, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. A year and a half later, Charlie's illness forced him to retire, and he died two months later at age 44. At this point, you would expect McDonald's succession pipeline to be dried out. Not so. Jim Skinner was next. The son of a bricklayer, Jim started at McDonald's as a management trainee right out of the Navy. And at the time of this unbelievable trial, with three CEOs in two years, a whole 40% of McDonald's' 50 top executives started in one of its restaurants, flipping burgers and sweeping floors. And it just tells you how strong of a ladder of opportunity McDonald's provides to all of its employees. That all of these executives rose through the ranks. And it happens that one of our favorite interviews that we've done on this program is with one such former McDonald's employee, Ed Renzi. Let's take a listen to a highlight of it. I said, Mr. Brown, my name's Ed Renzi and I need a job. And I got to make 85 bucks a week because that's my living expense. He said, well, that won't be any problem. We pay 85 cents an hour, and you could work 100 hours a week. I said, hell, I've done that all my life. That's not a problem. <laughs> and then they put a sign up, said managers wanted, and I signed up. I said, I'd like to be a manager. How much do they pay? And they said, they pay $95 a week. I said, I got a $10 raise coming. <laughs> and I only have to work 70 hours a week. Oh, my so goodness. I signed, up as a, I signed up as a manager trainee. I started February the 2nd, 1966, and left there in 1999. Ed Renzi left the company as its CEO after starting there making 85 cents an hour, working 100 hours a week. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Andy McKenna's story, a fellow Chicagoan, Alex, is he hails from Chicago as well. And again, when we come back, our On Leadership series continues Alex's conversation with Andy McKenna, the former chairman of McDonald's for 13 years and the owner of Schwartz. Schwartz, a leading supply chain management company in the paper industry. And if you get a chance, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch and listen to all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, on leadership. More with Andy McKenna and Alex Cortez. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're back with the final portion of this terrific feature in our On Leadership series, Alex's interview with Andy McKenna, the former chairman of McDonald's for 13 years and the owner of Schwartz, a leading supply chain management company in the paper industry. Let's return to their conversation. Given McDonald's provides this extraordinary ladder of opportunity that we talked about in the last segment, why do so many folks claim that they treat their employees unfairly? Here's Andy McKenna's response. McDonald's are far and away the biggest company of its kind, biggest, biggest in the category, biggest in the restaurant business, so to speak. Uh, so you always take shots at the, at, 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 at the, at the leader. And I think that uh, and they're, they're worldwide in 120 countries, so they're very global. So you, you pick on somebody, and, and so it's easier to pick on the big not easier, but it's, it's get more exposure if you pick on the big guy. So I think that's, but you know, when all is said and done, and I, people look at the work uh, that comes out of the Ronald McDonald houses, the house, there's maybe, I don't know, three or three, 350, 400 of those around the world, and those are remarkable places that help people in desperate need, really desperate need. These Ronald McDonald houses are a comfortable place to stay for families who have hospitalized children at a nearby medical facility. So... Yeah, you, you kind of roll with the, roll with the punches. Sometimes uh, it's it's it's. Uh, I remember growing up, uh, um, the Yankees won every year, so people got <laughs> mad, like that poke at the Yankees. Well, they were the biggest, uh, the biggest horse in the race, and they and they and, and they won. So you 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 shoot for the big guy. You know, you don't usually take a shot at the guy, the guy down somewhere. What most folks don't realize is that when you attack the big guy, McDonald's, you're really attacking the little guy. of McDonald's locations are not owned by the corporation. They're owned by little guys, franchisees, individuals in all of our communities who put their scarce resources in owning their very own McDonald's. An unrealized dream of mine. I still got time. And many of these folks had their very first job at another franchisee's location. And to close out this conversation for our On Leadership series, Annie and I spoke about a couple lighter subjects including this question that we ask every guest. Andy, is there something about you that folks wouldn't know? A passion, a quirk, a hobby? Um, I think some people are, 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 are uh, surprised when they hear that uh, I chaired both baseball teams in this town. How is that possible? And, and the story, because a, a group of us owned the White Sox and sold it to Jerry Reinstorff's group, but now owns it. And then I tried to buy the Cubs and found out that you had to have a. Uh, they, they, I was going to syndicate it. They, they wanted a, one owner to put a, a check down, and Union Company said that they they would buy it if I would come in and be chair. So having been chair of both teams in a town is just never happened, and probably never will never happen again. Yeah, many Chicagoans would even consider it heresy. But Andy is so friendly and so loves Chicago that he can't help himself but to like both teams. One Chicagoan we interviewed in the past, White Sox fan Paul Miller, vehemently disagrees with Andy. And let's take a listen to Paul ranting about folks pressuring him to cheer for the Cubs when they're in the playoffs and his White Sox aren't. It's the argument that my mother makes. Well, you want to root for Chicago. It's like, you know what, I do root for Chicago. I root for the Sox, the Hawks, the Bulls, the Bears. I even root for the Wolves. I go to Wolves games, which is the which is the minor league hockey team. 
Uh, I don't need to root for the Cubs. To me, the Cubs, the Cubs also to me are, they're not very Chicago. That's another thing to me. Now, even though of course they were, they're aligned with the city. To me, the White Sox always define that blue collar, working class, South Side ethnic, uh, you know, culture that is really Chicago. Cubs are a bunch of yuppies. It's a bunch of yuppies. You know, college kids who finally get their first job and they move into the neighborhood. You know, people that, you know, go for the game for a few innings and they go bar hopping. Uh, you know, a tourist trap. That's what the Cubs attract. To me, you know, <laughs> you know and, and, and a bunch of suburban schmucks. <laughs> a bunch of suburban schmucks. Brutal analysis from <laughs> Tell Paul. me how you feel. I happen to agree with Paul. My grandfather was actually a bat boy for the 1947 White Sox. Well, let's put that Cubs-Sox rivalry aside for a moment. I don't think we're going to resolve that one today. And I just wanted to make one note before my final question for Andy McKenna. Although you haven't been able to see Andy face-to-face like I did, I hope you can just see from the way he speaks in this feature how much of an authentic and welcoming gentleman he is. An example that I find personally inspiring of what we could all be in our interactions with others. And now, my final question. Is there a teacher that stands out to you that had a really profound impact on your life? So it's funny you ask that. Not so long ago, I wasn't sleeping one night and I thought to myself, I got to think of my, my teachers, my grammar school, high school, undergraduate, and law school. And I singled in my mind one at each at each level, each of whom had a, I look back on them. For example, in high school, uh, I, I went to Leo High School on the South Side. I had a, a, a chemistry teacher who was a, who was an Irish Christian brother named uh, Brother Finch, F-I-N-C-H. He was also a great basketball coach. Leo had great basketball teams and the athletic director. But in chemistry, and I'm not by no means a scientist, far from it. He he had a profound way of teaching, and he and, and he insisted on um, memory tests and because he lists all the elements and, and, and he wants you to connect the valences and the elements and so on so I can do th- I can do things today about chemistry or maybe other things because of the way he insisted we train our, me- our, 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 our memory mm-hmm. and that's so vital today because of you know so many people who knows what's going to happen to any of us wind up with dementia or yeah. or, or, or Alzheimer's or, or what have you? So I remember, remember that. Uh, also, remember a nun I had in eighth grade, Sister Florentine, who um, was uh, intolerant of grammatical mistakes. So she would make us do things like compose letters and do things on a regular basis. That uh, she wasn't worried about diagramming a sentence. She says, "You're never going to. Once you get out of school, you're never going to diagram a sentence anywhere. But you are going to write a lot of letters." And so she focused. And this is in eighth grade now. This is not high school or college. And she focused on things that you would do in life later. She was a grammar nut, if there is such a thing. But maybe the most profound was a history teacher I had, another name, American History, who um, uh, wrote a lot of books, Marshall Smelser. And I, I'm a, I'm an American history buff. In fact, if I were to go, to go back to school, I think I would major in history. Uh, just because of, not because of what he taught me, because he, he was a great teacher, but just his getting your attention on history. Uh, it's... Um, how do you think he did it? Well, I think that was just his style of, of, of doing it, and he, he welcomed you. I The other night, uh, I talked about sleep. I was in bed, and I was thinking about the presidents of the United States, 
and I would and, and I wanted to be able to in my mind name them all in order each each of the forty five presidents we've had and and I was able to do it because I remembered back to his course you know I had to think for a minute now Grover Cleveland served twice so who, who was in between oh that was Benjamin Harrison you know but there are some presidents we you know we have a we have some presidents who are very well known we have some presidents who are barely known at all. So and the, the, this fellow was, wasn't about memory as much as about just knowing your American history. So that, that there are people who have, a, have had an impact in, in, in that respect. And there you have it. Great job, Alex. And, well, you learn so much from these guys, and we've done a whole bunch of them now. We have Ray Dalio from Bridgewater, one of the great investors in world history, Vince Lombardi, Eddie Robinson from Grambling, John Wooden, the UCLA legend, Martin Luther King, Bear Bryant, Faye Vincent, who ran Major League Baseball and Columbia Pictures, and one of my favorites, Brad Anderson, who had been CEO of Best Buy. And what a story about leadership and life. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories, all walks of life, every walk of life. And in this particular segment, on leadership. We spent some time with Andy McKenna, the former chairman of McDonald's for 13 years and the owner of Schwartz, a leading supply chain management company in the paper industry. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite regular features. And it's called The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. Her latest question for the Wall Street Journal, and you can see it there regularly. Should high schools offer nap time? And I know the whole staff here is thinking, should Habib offer nap time? (laughs) And, well, Heidi, how how did this subject come up? And is there nap time in Heidi household? Oh, I'm feeling I'm feeling bad. I shouldn't even say that, but it's my it's the day after my birthday. It's not even my birthday, but I'm uh, I'm working from bed. This is what I do on days when it's beautifully sunny out, but too cold to go outside. But should there be nap time in high school? Well, so this is the, okay. The, where the idea came from was I'm ashamed to admit, but I was in, I was applying my oldest son for high school, and we were talking to all these kids here in our new town of Chicago, and every kid was talking about how they have a nap club or they bring their sleeping bags to school or they're encouraged to use their free periods um, to take a little snooze. There's sofas at some schools where they're allowed to lay down and just take a little break. There's um, there's a free period. If you, Your free period can come early in the morning, first period, if you have good grades so you can sleep in. And so then I started to look into it, and, you know, it was like 2014. There was a big movement from the um, American Academy of um, Pediatrics that uh, talked about pushing school start times, especially for high schoolers, to no earlier than 8.30. I don't know what time your high school started. Mine started at 7.15 in Arizona. Wow, and and by the way, Heidi, they start in the South. They start even elementary school. I take my kid to school at quarter to seven for a seven o'clock start, which means she's getting up at six. 
And I got to tell you, it don't make any sense to me, you know, sixth graders getting up that early. It's brutal. So then add on top of it, high schoolers who have like four hours of homework, perhaps a sport, maybe they're doing model UN, they're, uh, they're studying for their SATs, they have a social life, they're, of course, they're all on their phones all the time. And these kids are ending up with maybe five hours of sleep. So sleep deprivation is really a big problem. So mo- there was a big move to move um, school start times to no earlier than 8.30. It did happen here in Chicago, um, and it's hard because the routes of the buses and parents going to work and all these things have to change after school sports. It's a big, dramatic shift. So it hasn't happened everywhere. So some schools for whom this hasn't happened, they're looking at other ways where they can attack sleep deprivation. And a lot of it, interestingly, is happening at schools where kids are at risk for dropping out of high school, not going on to college, um, so it isn't just there was a, a lot of talk with my editors about like, well, is this just, you know, coddling these snowflakes? <laughs> and, right. um, but it isn't. I mean, a lot of uh, there's like data to back up that there's not a lot of data amongst teenagers because you, you can't really do so much data. But there was some in Brazil um, and some in Europe. And um, and there's lots of data about shift workers that can benefit from naps. Um, and from just growing ups that can benefit not too long of a nap, like 20 to 30 minutes is right. really optimal. Um, and then it comes into like, do we have space? Do we have, um, teachers who can oversee this? Can we assure that these children aren't abusing their privilege? So it's a, it's a complicated. Yeah. There's a lot, actually, there's a lot to touch. think about a lot to think <laughs> right. about. And by the way, you know, it's interesting. We talk about the snowflakes and they're out there, but I've also noticed, and I, I think you have too, Heidi, that there's never been more pressure on kids too. I mean, when I went to high school, no one was taking SAT camp. When I played basketball, I didn't go on the road and play all over all multi-states. I didn't have all the advanced placement and all the pressure about my, my GPA being 4.25 out of a 4 point. So we've created snowflakes. But at the same time, boy, we've been bearing down on these kids. And a lot of these kids, they bear down on themselves. And then when you take the inner city kids, and I've spent a lot of time around them, my goodness, the stressful environment some of these kids live in, exactly. there's no sleeping I mean, at night. Exactly. I mean, there were some some educators I spoke with, and they said, you know, one kid's mom had sold his mattress for money, and so he was sleeping on the floor, and so of course he's tired. So it isn't just kids that are going to private schools and have every advantage. Yes, they they I think they themselves and their parents feel like they need to be, you know, the president of every club right. and on the travel soccer team as the captain and all that stuff in order to get into, you know, Princeton, but but also just kids that need to just cope. I mean, kids need, they need eight and a half to 10 and a half hours of sleep. Yep. I mean, an eight and a half to nine and a half is the sleep, uh, American Academy of Sleep Medicine says. And that's just, I mean, how are you going to squeeze that in? So I thought it was a really interesting idea. So some of these schools have like a wellness center. They're in, in California, Northern California, they put, especially for these at-risk kids, they put the wellness center on campus, which is so smart so that kids can see doctors talk about sex ed, things they maybe can't do at home or don't have access to, um, they can do that at school. And along with that is like a cozy, comfortable area where they can have a cup of tea and it's free and just they chill out on a, on a couch for a couple minutes or 15 minutes and just relax and take a break from the day. There are other schools who are doing really interesting things using, and they're really test cases, but using transcendental meditation and then the the, the 
other group is the control group is they're not doing transcendental meditation meditation they're just doing um quiet time they call it quiet time and it's i mean these are kids that are old i mean they're 16 17 year olds and they're sitting in a room and not talking no electronics for 15 20 minutes um, at the beginning of the day at the end of the day and they've seen grades go up they've seen violence decrease so I don't believe that it's, um, you know, it's, it's something that for these coddled kids and a lot of the posts, I mean, there were a lot of positive comments at the bottom, but a lot of them were also like, how about parents, parents and let their kids sleep at night. But parents are also saying, I want you to go to college and I want you to get good grades. So there's just a lot of pressure coming at them from every angle. You bet. And in Japan, the Meisen High School gained international attention a decade ago for encouraging a midday siesta for all students. And teachers saw a dramatic rise in test scores, Heidi. Talk about that. Isn't that interesting? So Japan is an interesting case because they put, um, they take pride in their nap time. Um, so they, there's a word for it. I don't remember what it is. There was a New York Times na- um, article on how falling asleep, it's called being asleep and being present. It's a word that translates that, but the sleeping at your desk or on the train is very common and isn't looked down upon. Whereas, you know, in New York city on the subway, you know, you nudge the guy next to you like you're asleep, dude. Um, and so there, there isn't a stigma attached to falling asleep and it's maybe even beneficial. Um, I've talked to other, um, people like at the Mayo clinic and Cleveland clinic and they, um, they take naps in the middle of the day, turn off all the, I mean, these are highly engaged professional, you know, researchers and, and top of their field, and they will take a 20-minute nap in the middle of the day. So there are cultures in certain settings where napping is, of course, there's a siesta, which is part of Latin American and Spanish culture. And it makes sense because you would rise with the sun and you would sleep with the sun, and so sometimes your days were long. Yep. And after lunch, there's a known dip in your mental state, and so it makes sense that after lunch you'd maybe carve out 15, 20 minutes and, and just chillax. Oh, I'm half Italian, Heidi. That was a part of our <laughs> life. We had the big meals on Saturday and Sunday in the early afternoon, and then everybody went their ways and took a nap, and it got really quiet. And yeah, it was and wonderful. Yeah, productive, right? Yep. I mean, you're, you're alert and awake. Because for 4 o'clock, I mean, kids will take a power shake. They'll drink a Starbucks. You know, to get, just like grownups do, you know, to stay awake at four o'clock and, and get be alert and, you know, be able to tackle AP calculus. And it's it's tough. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I'm all for this. I think that the days probably need to be long enough, you know, so you could squeeze in a 20 minute nap and just like maybe play some Enya, turn down the music. <laughs> exactly. And get turn off your cell life. phone and get off your cell get phone. Get off your cell phone. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now, not everyone is convinced, Heidi, as we close this out, not everyone's convinced that this works. What are some of the teachers and parents' responses that you talk about? And again, we're talking to Heidi Mitchell of the Wall Street Journal, and this is one of our favorite segments, The Burning Question. What was some of the mixed reaction? So one that I really thought was well argued was that the reason why we are tired at whatever it is, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at, at night, it's because it, the distance from your last sleep is how tired you're going to be. So it's called sleep pressure. And if you nap in the middle of the day, you could be taking away some of that sleep pressure, which then might encourage these already overtaxed teenagers to stay up even later because they're just not tired. So you want to make sure that that they have enough sleep pressure that they're falling asleep. So you could make that nap, you know, school starts at 8 and you can make that nap at 12.30. They're still going to be tired by 10.30 and right. I think 10 hours is fine. So, so she had a good argument, though, that I'd rather see kids going to bed, you know, at 9.30 
and waking up at 5.30 or whatever and getting their real eight and a half hours in, um, then, then she would seeing them take a nap at school. And then, of course, many people I spoke to were like, where are they getting the money and where are they finding the space and like who's donating the yoga mats and, you know, is this a reality or are these kids just, you know, making out in the bathroom and, and, <laughs> and texting each other during right. this supposed nap time. Right. Um, so That's what, you know, Heidi, there. what I worry about or wonder about is you get a bunch of kids and you go, okay, kids nap. And how does that right. work? I mean, how does that work? Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can take a, a horse to water, right? But I think that just even, Studies have shown that even just darkening the room and calming it down, yep. I mean, especially with if you can meditate or just clear your mind of any thoughts for 10 minutes, for 15 minutes, it does have an impact on the rest of your day and you're more able to learn. I mean, some people were saying to me, this might be the new free school lunch, right. that they realized that kids couldn't learn in the afternoons because they weren't eating. <laughs> so they brought in this free lunch. Um, and one of the schools I spoke to, like 90% of the kids are on the free lunch program, and they're letting them um, use these nap pods, and they've seen violence go down in the school, and they've seen less um, absenteeism. So, Well, if it works, know, if it works Heidi, the time. jury's out. But, you know, we love the subject. Should high schools offer nap time? And should our American stories offer nap time? That's the burning <laughs> question here in the office. Thanks, as always, for joining us, Heidi. <laughs> Thank you. This Enjoy is, your nap. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Heidi Mitchell of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> 